Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Well, good morning again. If you weren't here earlier, I want to introduce myself. I'm Bruce Drugsma. I am the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church, and I am glad, we are glad you are joining us this morning. We are wrapping up our series called Capital Letters. So uh, next week, we'll start one on Colossians. So if you're a person who likes to read ahead and know where we're going, that's where we're going. Maybe you're glad we're getting out of a series that didn't allow you to follow along as easily. Um, but we're, we're wrapping it up, and uh, we're, we're talking about goodness, God's goodness this morning. And just because we're wrapping it up, I'm going to kind of go through where we've been Uh, Just kind of as a reminder, we started with the idea of the capital C Church. And and talking about the idea that the church comprises all believers, all those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And and there's some implications for that and how we as a local church, small C Church, should act. And implications for how we, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, should act towards other believers. Right? So that's where we started. Then we talked about the capital G, God. Uh, That God is God and we are not, and that anytime we lift anything else up to the same level of authority in our life that he alone holds, we commit idolatry. And that I challenged us that oftentimes we do that, we, you know, it's it's tempting to think that we don't commit idolatry because we don't have idols, physical idols in our home anymore. Uh, And I challenged us to think that anytime we lift our own opinion, our own desires, that we, there are times we think that we know better than God. Um... God, if you would just do this or just do that. Anytime we lift that up, we are committing idolatry. Then in week three, we talked about the truth. Uh, The idea that uh, capital T truth is tied to God alone, that God is the holder of truth, not me. Uh, And I need humility that there are certain things that we know from who God is and from scripture we know to be true about who God is, how we find salvation, where we find authority. Um, But other things we need to remember aren't at that same level, and that God is the holder of truth, not me, and, and there's some humility in how we engage in that conversation. And last week, we talked about worship, and we talked about worship being something that we should do beyond singing on Sunday morning, that worship is about how we live out our lives in worship to God, that if all these other things are true, then our, our posture towards God is to worship him alone, to worship him in reverence and awe, and to worship him with joy, and to worship him in word and deed. And so this week we are wrapping up by looking at goodness, God's goodness. And again, if there's, if there's anything that you take away from this series is that all these words are defined not by me, but by God alone. God is truth. God is God. God defines worship. God defines the church. And God defines goodness. Uh, God, there is capital G good and there is small g good. And there are a lot of small g goods in this world. And, and again, I'm not going to say they're bad, right? We have a lot of small g goods. The fact that uh, the Minnesota Twins have made a playoff victory for the first time since 2004 and won a series since the first time since 2002. Those are good things, but let's remember that they're small g good, right? They're not a capital G good. Because I think we can get in our mind that, that, that my definition of good is the right definition of good. And, and it's easy to see that when we talk about things like baseball. Like I remember being in high school and college and being a, a, a relatively immature believer and, um, and praying that God would let my team win. And, and 
you know, it took me a while to realize that there might be somebody praying for the other team to win too, equally sincerely. And what if God answers their prayer instead of mine, right? And we can sit there and, and be, but this is good if my team wins. Or, 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 you know, you have a family reunion and you pray, God, give us good weather. And there's a farmer next door going, God, give us rain, right? What, what is my definition of good? Is my definition of good based on what I desire? Another one that I run into frequently where we start to become the decider of what is good. Um, think of yourself driving down the road, right? Inevitably, when I'm late, it seems I'm driving down the road, I get behind somebody who is out for their Sunday afternoon drive and they're going 40 in a 60. And I think that the good thing that they could do is notice me and pull over and let me get past, right? That would be the good thing for them to do until I'm out on my Sunday afternoon drive where I am not running late and that person is tailgating me and I go, you know what would be good for them? (laughs) It'd be good for them if they learned to not plan to be there at the last minute. And it'd be good for them if they learned to slow down a little bit. See how we can start to define good our own way and uh, we can desire that it would be good for me. So we need to talk about goodness and what is God's definition because we have one definition of good when we are the victim and another definition of good when we are in a position of power and authority. What is my definition of good? Um, So, and if you've been here through this series and when we wrapped up the Psalms, you'll notice that this goodness thing is a theme that seems to keep coming up. And I don't want to belabor the point too much because we've kind of talked about goodness and glory, but you'll notice that I'm tying it to glory. If you looked at the title or if you look at our banner over here on the right, we have goodness and we have glory. And they're kind of combined and we've talked about this a little bit that God's glory and his goodness are interwoven with each other. And so just, we're going to talk about that a little bit, but I don't want to belabor that because we've kind of looked at that already, that God's goodness will pursue us from Psalm 23, and we're going to look at Exodus again, where Moses says, show me your glory, and God shows him his goodness. And so they are, they are tied together, and, uh, and, and so, so again, I don't want to belabor that, I just want to acknowledge that we're going to kind of push into that a little farther this morning. Um, and ask, what is truly godly good? And, and for those of you that like a good acronym to remember, I have an acronym for you this morning. If we're going to talk about God's goodness, we're going to use the acronym GOOD, G-O-O-D, to, to walk through God's goodness. And our first letter is G, which stands for God, true goodness. God's goodness is God-inspired. And this should come as no surprise. Again, all the way through this series, my first point has basically been this. The definition of the word depends on God, not on me. The definition of church, the definition of truth, the definition of God, the definition of worship are not defined by me, they're defined by God. And so it should be true that goodness should be God-inspired. It should be designed by God. It should be God-focused. Goodness is about God, not about me. James 1, 17 through 18 tells us this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And so we see that God is the source in here of truth, which we talked about last week. 
but he is also the source of all that is good. Look at that. It starts with every good and perfect gift. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Not some, not most, not majority. It's kind of like we talked about with truth. All truth belongs to God. All goodness belongs to God. Uh, It is God-inspired, and the roots of God's goodness is rooted in who he is. And this is where we're going to kind of review some of the stuff we've talked about already with God's goodness. But Genesis 1, God saw the light was good. He creates, and he says it's good. And we're going to see that pattern all the way through the creation story. He creates uh, plants, and it's good. He creates land, and it's good. He creates the heavenly bodies, and it's good. And then at the very end, he gets done with his entire creation, and he says it is very good. Right? God's goodness comes out in his creative plan. Here he is setting up, planning out his entire universe. And it, when he is done and he steps back, he says, this is very good. Good. The sky is good. The plants are good. The sun and the moon are good. God reserves his highest acclamation until all of his creation is completed, until his vision of creation is complete. So God creates from his goodness and his glory. It's tied up intrinsically in who he is. God is good, right? God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. And so here we have Moses comes along, and Moses has encounters with God that we can only dream of. God's word tells us that he will see God face to face. God's word tells us that that he climbs up on the mountain with God and has conversations with God and that he knows God in ways that nobody else has known God. Which begs the question of why when he, he starts dealing with a troublesome people, he starts dealing with the people of Israel who are disobedient, who are grumblers, who um, want to constantly usurp his authority and push him away. And he is in this constant battle with the people of Israel and he's got this reassurance of God. And, and he turns at one point in Exodus chapter 33, and he said, uh, verses 18 and 19, Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So Moses is struggling. After all of this, he's still struggling, and he says, God, show me your glory. And, and I've heard a comedian uh, who talked about um, pain medication, right? And you go in, and, and it used to be you just bought Tylenol, and now they have extra strength Tylenol. And now they have maximum strength Tylenol, which, which the comedian equated to take a lethal dose and take it back just a little. That's what I want, the maximum dosage. That's what I want. Maximum strength. That's kind of what Moses is doing here. He goes, God, I've seen this about you and I've seen this about you. I want maximum strength you. I need as much as I can physically handle. I want to see your glory. Uh, As one theologian, Douglas Stewart, put it, Moses had indeed seen God's glory in the past and therefore wanted to see it again in as full a way as God might choose to show it. So here's Moses who's encountered God in ways that we can only imagine. He says, God, I want maximum strength. 
And what does God show him? He shows him his goodness. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. So what is the most revealing aspect of God's glory that Moses can tolerate? This is goodness. God is good. It is intrinsic to who he is. And it is a significant part of who God is. So if God is good and if all he created is good, then when we as mere humans do godly goodness, it must be as well tied to who God is. Goodness must truly be God-inspired. And so it, it should cause us to think about all the things we do for people. We go, well, that was a good thing I did. And it might have been a good thing, but was it a capital G? Was it God-inspired good? Or was it self-inspired good? Right? Those times that we do those things, are we really doing this with God in mind and his glory in mind and so that people would find God in mind? Or are we doing it because we in some way might benefit from it? And that's maybe our first inkling of whether or not something is truly good, truly God-inspired good. Do you see goodness as part of being in unity with God? True goodness is God-inspired, and it draws people to his glory. And so our second letter in good is O. If, if it is God-inspired, our second thing that we should ask, is it the opposite of what we deserve? And this really gets at the idea that as we look at God, God is perfect, God is holy, God is all of that, and we are not. And so what we deserve is his wrath. What we deserve is death. What we deserve for our sin is separation from God, and yet we get the opposite of what we deserve. And we need to kind of start there in our head. Not all goodness is going to be the opposite of what we deserve, but if we remember that we have received the opposite of what we deserve, that God is so good, he has given us the opposite. Ephesians 3 reminds us we are by nature deserving of God's wrath. Excuse me, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 3. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And it goes on in verses 8 through 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's holiness and his compassion can seem at odds with one another. We see a holy God who cannot look on evil, who cannot tolerate sin, and then we see a God who is compassionate, who cares and loves, and they can seem at odds with one another. Right? That, that here we are, by nature, deserving of God's wrath. We are sinners, therefore we deserve punishment. And yet, instead, we have received the opposite. We have received grace through faith, not by works. I can do nothing to get myself into heaven. I can live a small g good life my entire life, and that's not enough. Because it's not grace. Grace is the ultimate Goodness, grace is something we cannot earn. It's something we receive. We have received the opposite of what we deserve. And so as we look around at our world and we will see God's goodness visited on those who don't deserve it, and it's tempting, again, when we define goodness by what benefits us, it's, it's tempting to look around and see people who do evil, who do wickedness, and see them receive goodness and go, that's not fair. God, why does the sun shine and the rain fall on the wicked as the good? 
And it's tempting to go, that's not fair. And we need to remind ourselves that it's, it's, you're right, it's not fair. Thank God. Thank God it's not fair. Because if it was fair, we wouldn't receive it either. Romans 5.8 tells us this way, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We received the goodness of God when we did not deserve it. We received the opposite of what we deserve. We are the opposite of good and we receive the opposite. And this is how God shows his glory to the world by visiting his goodness on others. The theologian Stanley Grenz puts it this way, the Bible indicates that compassion characterizes God's response to the human predicament. We find ourselves in a predicament that we cannot get ourselves out of and we see through scripture that God responds in compassion. Compassion characterizes God's response to the human predicament. God's goodness is visited on sinners ourselves included, on those who are the opposite of God, ourselves included, so who deserve nothing but wrath. So where have you experienced God's goodness in your life and not seen it as grace? And where have you looked at somebody else receiving God's goodness and not been happy for them for receiving God's grace, even though they don't deserve it any more than we do? It is the opposite of what we deserve and for us to try and withhold that from somebody else, that somebody else wouldn't experience that side of God, I would challenge us is not good. We have received the opposite of what we deserve and God is at work in our world and he is going to reach out to those who are still sinners just like he reached out to us. Goodness is the opposite of what we deserve. Our second letter O is that it's others-oriented, and this is where it gets a little more personal. It's others-oriented, meaning that if I am going to act, if I have received the opposite of what I deserve because God is good, then my goodness should be others-oriented as well. My goodness should not be oriented toward myself. I should not be seeking to do good things because it benefits myself. I should be seeking to do things for others around me, and this is the outflow of the first two. And Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 7, verses 11 and 12. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So we are called to do to others what we would have them do to us, not do to others what they have done to you, not do to others so that they do to you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you as a parent, if you as an adult can look at a kid and want to give them a good gift, how much more God, our Heavenly Father, looking at his children. There are so many passages that we could look at about doing goodness to those around us. Um, But it is centered in the gospel. And it should naturally flow out of us as an outflow of our receiving of God's grace. If we have received God's grace, it should naturally flow out of us. Ephesians 5, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Follow God's example. 
We are called to be others-oriented. We are called to give up for others. We are called to be self-sacrificial. As recipients of a godly, sacrificial love, we are called to share that love and goodness with those around us. If God is good and if God shows us his goodness when we do not deserve it, we must share that goodness with others. We must follow God's example. And Jesus will say this, and uh, I forgot to put this one on the screen. I'm going to read it. Uh, Matthew 22, verses 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment, right? Um, and, and so the teachers of the law come to Jesus and they go, tell us the greatest commandment. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So we can see that loving God and loving our neighbor are tied together. And it says that all the law and all the prophets hang on this. And what's interesting is what Jesus is quoting there in Matthew, when he says to love your neighbor as yourself, he is quoting from Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus, everybody's favorite book to read in the Bible. But it says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. As you can see, it expands on it. What Jesus says is just this verse, but if you read that verse in its entirety, you get a little bit more. This includes holding a grudge. This includes seeking revenge. That's not loving your neighbor. And we do that kind of stuff all the time. And, and what I think is so interesting, and, and to be clear, I actually like Leviticus. I like reading Leviticus. I think Leviticus is, a, is an important book in our Bible that is part of God's word to us, and it tells us some important stuff. And one of the things that I think this section in Leviticus specifically is telling us, if you read beyond that one verse in Leviticus 19, what I think Leviticus tells us is the way we live and act towards others is connected to our view of God. The way we live and act towards others is connected to our view of God. And, and, and let me kind of put some context to this and why I get this from Leviticus. Because here in Leviticus, it's not just talking about sacrifices. Yes, it does. It talks about the sacrificial system. But it's, it, it's not just religious practice and law. In verse 12, it also speaks of not stealing, lying, committing fraud, perverting justice, showing partiality, and gleaning from the fields which is an interesting one to throw in there with these, right? Lying, I get. That's in the Ten Commandments. Stealing, Ten Commandments. Fraud, Ten Commandments. Gleaning from the fields. Not in the Ten Commandments. Why is gleaning from the fields in there? And what is gleaning from the fields? Some of you are looking at me like, I have no idea what that is. So back in the day, you would harvest by hand. You couldn't collect it all. It wasn't possible. You would drop some. Right now, we have harvesting machines that do a pretty good job. But even now, if you walk through a cornfield after a corn harvest, you'll find some corn on the ground. Gleaning is going back and collecting all the stuff that fell. God's law forbade people from going back and gleaning from their fields, from taking from their fields a second time. That was to be left for those who needed help that they could go out and glean from the fields and pick up your leftovers, the things you had drawn, uh, that you had dropped, and they could use that themselves. It was, it was one of their, uh, you know, social programs. If somebody was in a, in a hard spot, they could go. We see it in the book of Ruth. If you read the book of Ruth, Ruth and her mother-in-law have no husbands to provide for them, so they go and glean from the fields. 
right? That's how they would provide for their family. That was their, that was their system. Um, and so, but back up even earlier in Leviticus, and we do have the sacrificial laws, but, and I'm going somewhere with all of this. This isn't just a um, historical um, footnote that, I, that I, wanna, I wanna share. This ties in with God's goodness. Leviticus 5 gives us instructions for the sin offering. So there were several offerings. The sin offering may have been the most important. The sin offering was the offering where you actually went in and said, I sinned and something else needs to pay that penalty. The sin offering was that. And it says this in Leviticus 5, anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves. So there's this graduated, if you can't afford this, you can bring two doves. And so we see Jesus' parents who were poor bringing in an offering for their newborn son of two doves because they can't afford a lamb. Two doves. But it goes on, if, however, they cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons, they are to bring an offering for their sin, a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour for a sin offering. So let me build the argument here. Leviticus 5 says, here's the requirements for your sin. And Leviticus 12 and Leviticus 19 say, hey, don't glean from your fields because not only is that a way to provide for people who can't afford food, but if you're so poor that you can't afford food and you can't probably afford two pigeons, but what can you do? You can go and glean in the field and get an ephah of fine flour to bring to cover your sin offering. And so it's not just a religious law, it's a social law. And, and what, what happens is that a greedy landowner can say, no, I don't want to give my flour, or my grain away. I don't want people to come and glean from the fields. I'm going to go back and pick over my grain a second time. And what Leviticus is pointing out is that it's not separate. Our religious and our view of God and how we treat others are connected because by being greedy and selfish in that moment, not only are you taking away somebody's food, but you're taking away potentially their access to God. If I can't go and glean, I can't bring an ephah of fine flour into the temple for my sin offering. So that should maybe give us a little bit of an understanding of Jesus' words, why he would quote Leviticus 19 when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because would you do things to yourself to shut off your access to God? And so how does love fulfill the law and the prophets? Because God, through his goodness to us, brought us salvation. And we are now ambassadors of God's goodness to bring about salvation to the rest of the world. And there are times when we don't act good that we think that what we're doing really isn't that big of a deal, but we never know when we are shutting off somebody else's access to God. And I want to end this section with Romans, Romans 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? And catch this last verse. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And, and we can read that and go, but I don't do those things. We can, we can pick whatever sin we don't struggle with. 
I don't struggle with, with greed. I don't struggle with gluttony. I don't struggle with lying. I don't, what, pick whatever sin you don't struggle with, whatever's the most obvious to you, and go, see, I don't do that. So I'm, I'm entitled to judge them. Well, we can say what they're doing is wrong, but we can't judge them by saying, you don't get God. You don't get God's goodness. That's what it's talking about. You don't get that access to God. When we do the same thing, in my pride, in my arrogance, I have been greedy. I might not be greedy like that person, but I have been greedy. And do I think that God's goodness is shut off from me? Do I think I get, don't get access to God? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And Paul will clarify this for us later in the same chapter, verses 9 through 11. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. We talk about God's holiness, and God's holiness is something that we want. We want God's holiness when it applies to somebody else. We don't want his holiness when it applies to me. I want God to be holy and judge that person, but me, I want grace. And we're reminded that God's goodness, thankfully, is others-oriented. We have a choice in how we treat our neighbors. We must be others-focused with our goodness, not just because God is oriented toward others, but because we can be messengers of that goodness of God. So true good is God-oriented. True good is the opposite of what we deserve. True good is others-oriented. And finally, true goodness, the letter D, denies self. And this is really the outflow of where we ended the last point. That if I really want other people to come to know God, oftentimes I will need to deny myself something good so that they get something better. Which brings us back to where we started. There are often two definitions of good. The good that benefits me, the wanting the person to pull over so that I can pass them, and the wanting the person behind me to learn to not rush, depends on my perspective, which car I'm in. There are often two definitions. And this says that oftentimes godly goodness denies itself. Philippians 2, therefore... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Our model, again, of goodness is Jesus Christ, who is self-sacrificial, who gave himself up. A Jesus who gave up the glory of heaven to take on human flesh and die in our place. That is our model of goodness. That is our model of self-sacrifice. That is our model of denying ourselves. And none of us have denied ourselves as much as God. Jesus Christ giving up the glory of heaven is way more than I will ever ever be expected to deny myself, ever be able to deny myself. And, and in the, we talked, Ed prayed uh, and mentioned that there was a wedding here yesterday and I shared this illustration with that couple and I'm gonna share it with you. One of the things I gave them as a wedding gift was a level. Why a level? Because I talked about how our 
what we should measure our love for each other in a marriage relationship or outside of it should be on God, not ourselves. If I hang a picture in my house in a way that I think looks level, it doesn't matter if I think it looks level. The level tells me whether or not it's actually level. It's not based on me. That's what we're seeing here. Just like a level tells you whether or not you're based on the world's levelness, we're going to look at Christ to be our model. I can sit there and go, I'm giving up so much. And then I look at Jesus Christ and I go, you know, really, I haven't given up very much at all. Jesus is our level. Jesus Christ is our model. And we want a church culture of goodness that brings healing and growth, and that's going to require sacrifice on our part. We want a church that speaks life to our community, and that might require us to give some stuff up. We want a church that, that brings healing. We want a church that welcomes people in. We want a church that is a good culture, and that might require us setting aside some of those things that we thought were so, so important. And maybe they were good. Maybe they were good. Maybe they are good. But maybe there's something better God has for us. And sometimes we need to set down the good to move to the capital G good, to the godly good. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. And this is a hard one because we don't want to give up what we have. And, and, and I would take, and I'm going to steal this from a gentleman who used to be, uh, who still is in our uh, free church district and used to be in leadership with our free church district, uh, Jim Anderson. And, and he has a, a book called For God's Sake Rest. And in there he talks about God's economy. And he's talking about the Sabbath, but I would argue that this applies beyond just taking a Sabbath. This beyonds to giving up whatever we have when somebody else needs it. In God's economy, God's economy looks at Sabbath rest and says, God, I believe that you can do more in me in six days than I can do on my own in seven. That's God's economy. God's economy says, God, you've called me to give, to tithe. I believe that you can do more in my personal finances with 90% of my money than I can do with 100%. That's God's economy. God's economy calls us to trust and give up ourselves, to deny ourselves, because God can do more when we give part of us up than we can do with all of us on our own. And that applies to our time, that applies to our resources, that applies to our money, that applies to our energy, that applies to our focus, that applies to all of us. That's God's economy. He doesn't call us to be self-denying just so we're uncomfortable. He calls us to self-denial so that we can see him move. And oftentimes we hold on to the things we value going, God, I'll, you know, I'll do whatever you ask except this one thing. And oftentimes that's the one thing God wants us to give up. And so as we look around at our church, if we want a church that has a culture that is defined by God's goodness, it may require us to give up some things that we thought were really important. Personally, as a church, whatever. But do we trust that God can do more in us when we give part of it up to him than we can do on our own? That's self-denial. And so we trust that God is good. 
And we know that true goodness is God-inspired. True goodness is the opposite of what we deserve. True goodness is others-oriented, and true goodness denies ourself. Do we look for God's goodness? Would you pray with me? God, we want to pray today like Moses. God, we want to see your glory. And so, God, we want to see as much of your glory as possible. And so, Lord, we look for your goodness. And, God, we pray that we, as a church and as individuals, God, would set aside our own personal desires, our own personal wants, God, to see you move. And we know that when we do that, God, you can do more in us than we can do on our own. So Lord, help us to trust in your goodness. I pray this in your name. Amen. A couple of things I'd like to highlight this morning. Uh, if you are uh, relatively new to our congregation, in the last six months or so, and would just like to find out more about who we are, uh, I would invite you to come to our new attenders uh, brunch that we're having. Uh, that would be next Sunday. It's an opportunity to get to know us and us to get to know you and get some of those questions answered that maybe you have, um, all that sort of stuff. And as we talk about uh, God's economy, one of the things that does play in God's economy is candy, uh, especially when candy is oriented towards others. So we have an opportunity with our harvest party to bless our community. Um, so if you're a bargain hunter uh, and, and know how to find a good deal on candy, we would love for you to take advantage of those God-given skills um, and then share that with us as a church so that we can bless our community at the Harvest Party. There, there's info and signups in the back corner. Uh, we're also looking for some people to help with some setup. We're looking for some people to help run some games. Um, and then finally, uh, we do have a baby shower this Thursday um, for baby Junie. Uh, so we would love to have uh, you join us for that. Um, that is all I have. Oh, there it is. There's the, the baby shower. Um, I want to end this morning from Galatians chapter 6. And Paul writes these words. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Especially those who belong to the family of believers. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.